Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. I'm excited to be bringing you this episode today from the road. I'm speaking at the Fearless Conference at FBC Gonzalez and having a great time. In this episode, I bring back on a former guest, one of my favorites, Jay Kim, to talk about his new book, Analog Christian. I previously had Jay on to discuss the church and the new online media world and why the church cannot be replaced by online platforms and the embodiment of the church is essential. In Jay's new book that we discuss in this episode, Analog Christian, we expound those themes, but more so in the individual Christian's life. We talk about the dominance of digital media in our lives today, how it saturates the environment that we live in. How Christians should think about that, what kind of insights we get from the Christian worldview, and then how to uh, gain some freedom from the dominance of digital media in our lives. Jay Kim serves as lead pastor for teaching at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley of California. He's the author of Analog Church and his most recent book, Analog Christian. And his recent work has been featured in Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, Relevant, and Outreach. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and two young kids. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all future episodes and content sent directly into your inbox. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes automatically on your homepage. Uh, And if you are helped by this content, it really helps us out if you leave a rating and review. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple, and also write a review on Apple Podcast. When you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Jay Kim. Jay, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron. Uh, joy to be back on with you. Well, I'm glad to have you back. You uh, wrote an excellent book called Analog Church, and then that we got to talk about last year. And since you've come up with something that we, I guess we could call a follow-up uh, called Analog Christian. And so glad to have you back on to talk about the book. Just start off by telling us what drew you to write another book about Christianity and technology. That's a good question. You know, to be totally honest, um, this book that's coming out, now analog christian uh i initially thought was going to be the first book so when i when i first talked to um my publisher uh i pitched two book ideas they were connected it's these two books and the publisher suggested hey why don't we write the book that's that's more specifically geared for church leaders first and then delve into sort of a broader you know approach to the digital age and discipleship in the digital age. So um, I, I share that to say these are ideas I've been thinking about and wrestling with for a while, for several years, primarily because I found myself just personally, not even as a pastor, but just as a human being, mm-hmm. um, really wrestling, uh, struggling with what felt like just this constant never ending tug of war 
uh, with discontentment and fragility and foolishness. Um, and not all because of, but a lot of it, much of it because of how tethered and enslaved really I was uh, to my digital devices and to social media. And I just really started thinking about how my digital online life was really forming me in ways that I didn't really want to be formed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started thinking about these ideas. I, I you know, I started going to scripture and prayer and, uh, and, and then I was just really drawn to Paul's famous words in Galatians five, where he talks about, um, the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. When the spirit of God, uh, begins to cultivate new life in us, what the fruit of that really looks like. And these really beautiful, profound characteristics of the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, um, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like we, many of us can rattle those attributes off. But uh, as I started deep diving into each of those, you know, and what the scriptures have to say about them, I realized, oh my gosh, like these attributes, these characteristics of the spirit's work in our lives, um, these characteristics are the antidotes to so much that ails me and ails us in the digital age. So that's really where the book came from. I've been, I've been telling folks, this book is first and foremost, it's just a prayer. You know, it's mm-hmm. my own prayer for my own life. Like, Lord, by your spirit, make me into this sort of person little by little every day. And uh, so as I was kicking around that idea, um, the hope was that, you know, if I'm dealing with this, my guess is that many others are as well. And, uh, and maybe this will be helpful to some of them. Yeah, I agree. I think many others are as well. I, it's something that I've been uh, a topic I've been wrestling with and thinking about for years as well. Um, what are some of the primary uh, influences, resources that you've used to shape your thinking about media and that have maybe even shaped this book? Oh my goodness! Yeah, so many. I'm just I'm gleaning from the wisdom of of so many before me. You know, standing on their broad shoulders. Um, outside of Christian thinkers, you know, older uh, older works by people like Neil Postman, Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. McLuhan is, is a little obscure and kind of hard to read and understand. And I don't know that I totally agree with everything he said, but yeah, I think uh, obscure McLuhan- and hard to understand is putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah, but fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. So the 12% of McLuhan that I think I understand has been tremendously helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, Neil Postman, I think some people are familiar with his work. Again, also really helpful. And then, you know, more recently, you know, folks like Sherry Turkle, Gene Twenge, um, Nicholas Carr, Adam Alter, yeah. Jaron Lanier, you know, Tristan Harris and a lot of mm-hmm. work he's done in terms of um, the ethics of design. I listen to his podcast uh, almost religiously. Um, yeah, folks like that have been really helpful, uh, you know, in in sort of um, evangelical Christendom, if you will. Um, Andy Crouch, who, who's become a friend mm-hmm. over the years, has been a tremendous influence on me and just his yeah. thoughtfulness um, and his willingness to engage uh, the cultural moment we're in, you know, his latest book, The Life We're Looking For, incredible stuff there. Um, uh, I was just talking to my friend, Jason Thacker. He's got a new book coming out called yeah. Following Jesus in the Digital Age. And uh, I was I was able to read an early copy of that and, and um, 
Uh, my friend Brett McCracken wrote a book called The mm-hmm. Wisdom Pyramid uh, a few years ago. That that that's just been really helpful and transformative for me as well. So, yeah, plenty of men and women who have uh, shaped my thinking, and I'm grateful for all of them. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of those. Many I, I've read as well. There's a few that I still need to read, but I definitely agree with you on all of those as excellent resources. And um, and I, I like to share resources with our listeners. Yeah. Uh, and I, I include all these things in the show notes. So I know that we just threw out a lot of names there, but, but <laughs> if we just chose like three resources from that long list that I'll include in the show notes for the listeners. Yeah. Just like here, here's top three other resources. Oh my goodness. Well, I would highly recommend Andy Crouch, his newest book, uh, which I already mentioned. Uh, I don't think I mentioned him, but I would also probably very highly recommend Nick, um, Cal Newport. Uh, he's yeah. got several books out, but in particular, his book, Deep Work which my guess is that a lot of people have probably read. He sold a lot of copies of that book, but deep work, um, super, super helpful. And then Nicholas Carr, his book, The Shallows, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for me, gave me so much insight and was it, it was helpful in terms of naming, even on a neurological level, naming and explaining why I felt the way I felt um, so much. So. Yeah. If I had to whittle it down to three, Andy Crouch, Cal Newport, and uh, Nicholas Carr, maybe those are the three I would recommend. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll definitely include those in the show notes for anyone who's interested in going and checking out those resources as well. So there's a lot of us out there who are, and really all of us, I think, are wrestling through the dynamics of living in the digital age, as it's been called, or um, you know, under, uh, starting to perceive that these devices and apps are having an influence on us. One thing that I think makes your perspective unique is that you were born and raised in Silicon Valley and you still live there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and so maybe even more or maybe even, or just differently, you've been uh, experiencing this digital age. So how do you think that being born and raised in, you know, the, the center of the tech world has influenced the way that you approach this topic? Yeah, you know, I've been asked that question before. A couple things come to mind. One, my uncle, when I was really young, my mom and I, single single kid, single mom, uh, just me and my mom, uh, we lived with my uncle's family for several years, and he worked at IBM. So we had like several, you know, old personal computers around the house. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, but I was just, I was surrounded by technology and that just sort of continued throughout my life. So I think in some ways, uh, my interest in technology as a whole was um, a product of my environment. I was just around it all the time. And once I got a little bit older, I started asking more questions about, oh, like beyond its functionality, I wonder what its formative power is in our lives. Um, and then, you know, as I uh, began, one, just following Jesus, um, but also, two, when I began serving in local church ministry as a pastor, I started really asking questions about the intersection between digital technologies, formative powers, and our discipleship to Jesus, you know. Um, and, and as I started thinking about that intersection, I realized I think there might be ways in which the formative effects of technology and digital technology in particular, I think there might be ways in which it actually stands 
intentionally or unintentionally in opposition to um, the formative nature of following Jesus or the sorts of people uh, God intends for us to become, to be formed into. And so that that whole sort of internal dialogue was really captivating for me. The other thing that uh, I think maybe sort of being here um, did was I, I'm surrounded by men and women who work in digital technology. Like our church, I'm sitting in my office right now. Every Sunday, we've got hundreds of people here uh, at our church. And I mean, this sounds crazy, but I... I, and it's just a guesstimate, but my guess would be well over 50% of our church either works in tech or have like one degree of separation removed from someone who works in tech, a spouse or a parent or whatever. And so it's kind of all around us. I'm I'm with people who make this stuff that is so ubiquitous uh, in our back pockets. So, um, you know, like literally the the... Uh, lead designers for things like the Apple Watch. Um, uh, these are folks who go to our church. And so I, I have the opportunity. It's a tremendous gift to be able to sit with some of these folks and ask them big picture philosophical questions about why they make the stuff they make and why they design it the way they do. And they're followers of Jesus. So so I see in them a real tension as well, you know? And so I think all of those things have sort of informed um, how I think about digital technology and its juxtaposition with just discipleship to Jesus. And also it's just sort of fueled my interest, you know? So yeah, my surroundings, my environment for sure have had and continue to have a pretty significant impact on on my interest in this area. Yeah. And another thing that I, I wonder is uh, how much of a conversation is is this? And the conversation being uh, technology and ethics and technology and how is it influencing us? How much of a conversation is this in the circles that you've been living in uh, for your life there? And, and I guess, in, in, you know, in the past decade or so, uh, in, in your church with the people who work in tech, but then also uh, just in, in the broader community? Is it something that is being discussed or um, or even there in where you live? Uh, is it is there somewhat of a, uh, you know, like a, a fish and water effect yeah. where it's just so a part of everything that no one really sees it? Yeah. I might be a little biased here because I'm so interested that it comes up in conversation a good deal. So yeah. maybe my own personal experience makes it feel like uh, people are talking about it a lot. But I don't think that's totally true. I think in actuality, uh, here in the Silicon Valley at least, um, people generally are quite thoughtful and mindful about technology. Now that's not to say people aren't still deeply addicted and really tethered to their devices. We are, I, I still am in many ways. I'm still fighting. You know, I have certain practices in my life that have been tremendously helpful and I certainly am much further along now than I was even, you know, three, four five years ago, but it's still a struggle. I mean, uh, digital technology, social media, um, there is an inherent sort of uh, 
addictive uh, power to to them that you know is mm-hmm. difficult to deny. But I would say there is a there is a very strong awareness here amongst the people that I interact with and talk to, uh, and in particular, interestingly enough. Uh, those who work in technology are really, really mindful and thoughtful about the technologies they create and how those technologies are or are not leveraged and used in their families and in their homes. There's that famous story about Steve Jobs and how he wouldn't let his kids use Apple products, you know, until they were like 18 or something like Mm -hmm. that. And that's a true story. It's, it's a story he himself told, you know, so um, that tells you something, you know, it tells you something that the people who make these things understand their formative power. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's actually a conversation that I hear quite often around here, which to me is is a uh, is a really hopeful thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that uh, just an awareness of of the environment that we're living in and talking about it, coming up with solutions and uh, using these devices with more wisdom is absolutely a hopeful thing and something that we need everywhere. Uh, yep. You know, I think that the conversation is probably even more prevalent there uh, because it's such a part of people's daily lives and uh, then might be in other places where the devices are just taken for granted. Yeah. You wrote that the devices and apps and all that we're using, that they are using us as much as we're using them. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I'll lean on Tristan Harris here. A lot of people might know him from um, that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, that came mm-hmm. out a couple of years ago. I think it did really, really well. He's one of the main voices in that documentary. Um, uh, I first heard that sort of phraseology from him, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he, he says something to the effect of, you know, most of us think that social media is free because we open our phones, we go to the app store, we download whatever social media app we want, we pay nothing and make an account and boom, there we are in this world of social media, whatever it might be, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, anything, YouTube, whatever it might be. And uh, what Tristan Harris says is actually nothing is free. If it's free to you, there's a very good chance that you are the product Right. And um, if you really think about it and and not even think about it long, but if you just think about it and read a little bit of the news, um, what you realize is, oh, that's actually true. (laughs) We are the products. We're the ones being bought and sold on the marketplace of social media. You know, this whole thing runs on the currency of human attention. And so as I give my attention to the social media platforms, that attention is the thing that's being exchanged. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because products do not have control in the exchange, right? Products are the thing being exchanged. Those in control are the seller and the buyer. And the reason that is important is because we use social media uh under the guise of control. We think we're in control, but just think about it this way, even just from an addictive standpoint. I mean, how many times have you found yourself in any moment of boredom waiting at a red light, which is super dangerous, or in line at a grocery store or the DMV? What does your hand just naturally, even without thought, what does it do? It reaches for the phone, 
you slide it open and you go to whatever, wherever your social media apps are and boom, touch of a thumb and there you are, right? Yeah. In, in many ways, not for all of us, but I think for many of us, we would admit it owns us. We don't own it. It owns us. And the reason that is so important for, for the life of the Christian is, you know, discipleship, Christian discipleship really means learning and living the way of Jesus so that we might be formed into Christ likeness. And formation is a big fancy word. And we like to think of it as this like beautiful poetic journey of, you know, sipping my cup of coffee on a beautiful lake, reading a little bit of the Bible a couple times a year or something, you know, but formation is not that. I mean, that, that's a part of it, but formation really is what happens on the ground consistently every day. We are formed by the things that we participate in, the things that we do, the things that we most consistently lean our life and energies into. And so if that is true, and I believe wholeheartedly that that is true, then we have to really be mindful. If these devices and these technologies and these platforms own us, if they have, if they sort of lord it over us because of our addicted allegiances to them, mm -hmm. then by by the nature of that reality, we are being formed by them. Uh, we are products being shaped in the image of whatever that particular platform wants us to be, so that we might be more. Uh, effectively bought and sold on the marketplace of digital. Um, and that's, I don't think anybody would intentionally long to be formed in that way. Yeah. So if we want to be formed in a different way, there's no other way to do that, but to be intentional and take control back, you know, rest back control of our formational journeys from these devices and technologies and platforms that are currently forming us. Yeah. Maybe for some of our audience that this is very new, um, this conversation is new to them. Can you help them with just some examples of the ways that our apps and devices are designed to uh, commoditize our, our attention and to uh, make us addicted to them? Yeah. Well, you know, there was that really big giant news story, um, several months ago, maybe it was last year, Frances Haugen, who was a whistleblower. Um, she used to work for Facebook and I'm not, I'm not here to bash Facebook or any particular company. Um, there's a lot of nuance and, and, you know, uh, complexity there, but the story is the story. Uh, Frances Haugen, who former, former sort of higher up at Facebook basically came out as a whistleblower with documentation showing that Facebook as a company was actually acutely aware of the negative adverse effects of its platform on individuals and on entire societies. And yet not only did Facebook choose to ignore that data, they chose in many ways to leverage um, the, the economic benefits that that data offered. As an example, uh, and this is widely known, so it's not going to be news to, to many people, but as an example, what the data shows us is that the most engaging social media posts are uh, social media posts that elicit outrage. This is why we have the, the term outrage culture. We live in an outrage culture. 
And while we like to blame one another, you know what I mean? We like to mm. say, oh, people are horrible these days. People are so angry. People are so outraged. That's true. That's not untrue. Uh, but it's not true in a vacuum. We are the way we are because we have been formed in many ways by the technologies and the, and the platforms and social media uh, mediums at our disposal because these these applications that we are sort of um, addicted to, they're designed to run on the fuel of outrage and vitriol. And because we're addicted, we find ourselves in the vortex of outrage nonstop for many of us. And so we become outraged people. We think that that's how we are supposed to engage and interact uh, yeah. on social media. So that's a way it's forming us, right? It's actually having a formative effect on me. And the real danger, I think many people can relate to this. The real danger of it is it's not like you turn the outrage off the moment you shut off your phone. That stuff lingers in you like it stays in your body, in your heart mm -hmm. and mind. And so the application does its work. It, it, it pulls us into the vortex of outrage. And then the application's gotten from us what it wants to get, and we turn it off until we go back. You know, it's there waiting for us with open arms. But that formative effect, being a person of outrage, harboring outrage within, that lingers. You know, you, you carry it into your home. You carry it into your relationships. You carry yeah. it around your heart and mind at all times. Yeah. Um, and I think that happens in so many different ways, right, with so many different characteristics, um, so again, I, I think that's why it's one of the reasons why we have to be intentional. We have to be mindful, uh, if we want to be formed into the, into the sorts of people that we think God longs for us to become. Yeah, it will, uh, it'll absolutely suck. Just, just that one example of the, uh, of the, the outrage that, um, that it forms a, into us, it'll just suck the mercy out of our hearts. Yeah. Right. There's no room yeah. for mercy in a heart that's full of outrage. That's uh, right. And it starts, it'll start to affect the way that you see people in your community, mm -hmm. you know, just out and about whenever you see someone who wears a certain t-shirt or who looks a certain way that you think fits the model of that, uh, group of that person that you're supposed to be outraged at, <laughs> then, then it's going to, you're going to, it's going to shape the way that you view them. Yeah. You know, this makes me think of this meme that I saw recently where like at the top it's, it had these. Uh, little characters who are just uh, who are who are just frazzled and falling apart and saying like people on Twitter, oh no, the world's falling apart. And then at the bottom, this guy who's just out in nature, uh, and and he, and he's saying, what a beautiful world we live in. <laughs> and it, and it made me think about how true it was and how I think so many of the anxieties that we have, the the outrage that we carry with us, the jealousy and envy that many of us harbor. It, it, we could go on and on how many of those things would just maybe not go away like that, but would at least start to fade away if we just simply got off our phones. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. You know, um, this, uh, this past summer, I, I, I took a three week vacation and the first week Jenny and I took our kids down to Southern California and I deleted everything from my phone, all social media, um, I deleted my email 
And, uh, I actually, I have a couple of news apps on my phone that, um, where I read, you know, the news every day, I deleted those as well. And so I did not know what was happening in the world. And I knew that if something serious and tragic happened, someone on staff would call me. And if I really needed to get pulled in, I could. So I just deleted everything. And it's exactly what you're saying. Um, sure enough and fairly quickly, I just began to see the world through a different lens. And it wasn't just because I was on vacation. It was because I had stopped that sort of rushing river of constant, the constant deluge of information of every little single detail of every single tragedy happening in every corner of the world. And it's not to say we should ignore the tragedy and walk around like, happy, shiny people, you know, in the words of REM, it's not that at all. We have to be aware for sure, but there is also a, a serious danger in just constantly filling our minds with everything that is broken in the world. We have to yeah. be tempered and responsible about our information intake. Otherwise we're going to become the sorts of people who just live in impossible despair. And we very quickly forget, you know, um, Jesus said that in this world, we will have trouble. This should not surprise us. But as followers of Jesus, our hope uh, is in Christ, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. Uh, in Christ who rules as king over heaven and earth, you know, and no matter what happens on this side of eternity, God's in control and we know how the story ends. And so without the the sort of constant flooding of news and social media, yeah, I just found myself breathing deeper, living freer, enjoying my days in ways that I hadn't in a long time. Um, So yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I think that what you give your attention to fills your mind and soul and, and then what ends up forming you, as you're saying. Yeah. And whenever we allow every moment that could be for some introspection or for enjoying watching our kids play or for prayer, uh, for maybe listening to beautiful music, enjoying nature, whatever else. In every moment where we get just the unplanned chance to enjoy those things and do those things, instead we fill ourselves with mental and spiritual junk food. Yeah. And then no surprise, we feel sick just like we would if we were filling our stomachs with actual junk food all the time and not what our stomachs actually meant to uh, run on, which is good nutritious food and the same thing for our souls. I did something similar to like what you're talking about. Um, I did what Cal Newport recommended in digital minimalism uh, with the 30 day detox. Mm. And I actually, at the end of the 30 days, I just kept going because it was was wonderful. I I loved it, you know, and the same exact thing like you were saying. Um, it takes a couple of days, but then it's like, uh, all of a sudden, you, all of a sudden you you realize that you were like living in smog and now you're breathing fresh air. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, that is the metaphor. Yeah. I love that for sure. Yeah. What are some, uh, what are some of the unique solutions or insights that Christianity and, uh, biblical theology offer to this conversation and the problems that we, uh, face with digital media? Yeah, you know, the scripture is is full of, um, I think if we do the work, it's full of really brilliant, beautiful, profound uh, responses to how we might untether and free ourselves from our digital addictions and really more importantly, 
the formative powers of technology in our lives. Um, for me, and this is where, you know, the book sort of came from. For me, I found um, Paul's words in Galatians 5, you know, his words about the fruit of the Spirit, so incredibly helpful, right? That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the reason I found it so helpful is as I was thinking about all of the formative effects of the digital age on my life and my sort of, um, you know, addictions to social media, uh, things like self-centric despair and comparison and contempt, I realized that these nine characteristics of the spirit uh, and the spirit's fruit stand in stark opposition to and really exist as antidotes to so much of what ails me in the digital age. So love instead of self-centric despair, joy instead of comparison, peace instead of contempt, you know, patience instead of impatience, on and on and on. And um, it's not easy. It's not like a, it's, it's not like a, you know, like a pill you take and then the next morning, boom, there you are. You're a person who just exudes and overflows with the fruit of the spirit. It's a fruit because bearing fruit takes a while, you know, it mm. takes consistency and you can't microwave an orange. You got to plant the seeds and grow an orange tree and give it water and sunlight and, you know, make sure that, uh, the tree's well taken care of. And then maybe just after many years or something, the tree grows and, uh, in season it, it bears some fruit. And so it's, you know, it's a lifelong journey, but it's a journey we can lean into every single day. And so the goal I think is to, to become a person who, uh, embodies and experiences love more than self-centric despair and to do that even more so just a little bit tomorrow and maybe even a little bit more the day after that, all of it because of the spirits work in our lives. That's the other thing too. It's, you know, I spent so many years trying to solve the digital problem and the, and clean up the digital mess in my life with really good practices and discipline. And I would say that practices and discipline are critically important, but real transformational change, I think really happens when we invite the spirit of God to transform us to transform our longings, our desires, our loves, you know, and, and that's where genuine transformation happens, uh, which is why it's the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruit of discipline or the fruit of practice or the fruit of, you know, reading the right book that gives you all the solutions. It's the fruit of the spirit of God in us. And, on the one hand, while that might be a little bit frustrating to some, it's like, oh, but Jay, I want to solve this problem tomorrow. On the other hand, I would say it's actually the most hopeful thing out there because for, for Christians, you know, the promise is that the spirit of God is in us. He's not just with us or around us. He is in us, you know, communally as the body of Christ. And as we participate in the body of Christ, he is in each of us, right? The spirit of God is in me, which means that the source of power to experience transformation, to be freed and untethered from my enslavement to digital, it's right here. It's as close as your next breath. You just yeah. have to lean into it. You have to invite God by his spirit with an open heart and open mind to transform you day by day into the sort of person he's called you to be. Yeah. So to meet the spirit so that he can do the transformation, there are still practices and, and, and things that we do 
in, in discipline in disciplines to meet him. I, I think that it's good that you emphasize that it's the spirit, not the disciplines that brings about the transformations. Yeah. Um, so we don't put our faith in our specific practices, um, but we put it in the spirit uh, and understand that we do the practices to meet him uh, yes. so that he can do his work in our heart. You know, may, uh, like God called his people out of slavery to Egypt to worship him in the desert. Uh, but then when he opened the door, they had to walk, right? Whenever he opened the Red Sea, they had to walk through. And so similarly, if we're going to have freedom and exodus from slavery to technology, uh, we have to walk through the Red Seas he opens to us so we can meet him and worship him yeah. where he desires. And so what are some of the practices that you uh, talk about in the book that you recommend to people in your church and ministry uh, in order to meet the spirit and experience his transformation? Yeah, well, I love what you said about Cal Newport's suggestion about a 30-day digital detox. You know, that probably sounds daunting to a lot of people. But like you said, it is hard for the first few days. But once you get into it, you will feel like you're breathing clean air for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really interesting about, about that metaphor. You know, you don't really know you're breathing um, unclean air until you get up to the mountains and breathe clean, fresh air. And you realize, oh, this is what air is supposed to be like, mm, you know? Yeah. When you're in it, you don't know. Um, like that proverb about the fish is like, how's the water today? And the other fish is like, what's water? You know, that old proverb, right? Like if you're in it, you just don't know. You're not aware. And I think we're so in it in terms of digital that a detox stepping away um, helps us realize, oh, there's a whole other way to live life. And it's actually quite beautiful and wonderful mm -hmm. and life-giving. Um, yeah, I have some, some similar thoughts, practices similar to that, that we implement in our lives as a family. And, and for me as an individual that I found really helpful, um, some of it comes from Andy Crouch, who I mentioned earlier, uh, in his book, TechWise Family, he suggests digital Sabbaths. And so uh, a way to think about it would be one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. So is there one hour a day where you can just completely unplug? No email, no texts, no social media, no phone, no laptop, no iPad, no TV. Just shut it all off and be human, whether it's on your own with a Lord or a good book or going for a walk or a hike, or maybe it's a meal with friends or family. Maybe it's playing with your kids or uh, a long late evening chat with your spouse, whatever it might be. Is there at least one hour a day when you can be completely untethered and, and you can't accumulate like when you're brushing your teeth or whatever. <laughs> it, it means like an intentional hour where you shut it all off. And then is there one day a week? So for us and our family, we try to spend almost all of Saturday completely away from digital devices. So on most Saturdays when we're free, Jenny and I will take the kids for a hike and then a good meal somewhere. Uh, and then a quiet afternoon at home, maybe playing in the front yard. Um, and then maybe, you know, dinner with friends or family in the evening, right? We try to set up our weekends, at least Saturday, in a way where um, we spend time in the most human embodied way possible without digital. And then is there a week? Is there a week where you could shut it all, all off? You know, can and, and that sort of thing, you got to like, look at your calendar and pre-plan and schedule, you know, because everyone's mm. got email on their phone and work and how can I do my work without my phone, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But is there a week that you can pre-plan every year where you say, this is the week uh, next year where 
we're going to get away. We're going to go up to a cabin or we're just going to stay at home, but we're going to do it without any digital devices. And we're just going to plan the week in a way where we don't need technology. You know, those sorts of consistent, regular rhythms, I think for me in my life have been really helpful because they rehabituate me um, and they remind me of what's really meaningful and what's really good and beautiful and true. Yeah. Um, another thought that comes to mind, this is also from Andy. He talks about how we need to treat our smartphones in particular, the way parents treat their young children, meaning we have to put them to bed before we go to bed and we've got to wake up before they wake up, you know? So that would mean your phone doesn't sleep with you in your bedroom. You know, it stays in the charging station, maybe in your kitchen or something. That's the way we have it set up uh, in our home. And then when you wake up, you know, typically if the phone is like right there on your nightstand, there's like, you're not, you're going to cave to the temptation. You're going to reach over, pop it open, mm -hmm. check your email or your social media or your news app or something. But instead, can you leave the phone out, out of arms, you know, arms reach and wake up and spend your morning without digital, you know? So yeah. uh, that's been really helpful and transformative for me. Um, I've deleted all social media from my phone. So if, if, and when I need to get on social media, it's on my laptop, which is way less convenient than the phone. Another thing deleting social media from my phone has done is it's forced me to sit in moments of boredom. So mm. when I wait in line at the grocery store, or the DMV for years, at the moment of boredom, I would pull out my phone from my back pocket and open whatever social media or news app, you know, I felt like opening, but now I don't have that. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I have to sit in my boredom, but what yeah. I have found is it's in sitting in the boredom that I eventually make my way to the most creative life-giving parts of my mind. You know, we, I feel like most of us don't sit, sit alone with our thoughts enough because we are constantly distracted and the opportunity for distraction is all around us and its temptation is really strong. Um, but I think boredom is the path to creativity and depth. Uh, and so we're losing creativity and depth because we're just not bored enough for mm -hmm. long enough. Yeah. And so, um, that sort of practice has been really helpful for me as well. So there's several others, but those are a couple that come to mind. Yeah, those are great. Those are all ones that I've practiced. And I have to admit, I haven't been very good lately with the one about uh, putting your phone to bed before you and getting up before it. Even that one alone, it, if if people listening to this are looking for like one super easy way to start putting a curb on technology, that one is, it's such a small um, habit. You know, just put it to bed an hour before you, or at least an hour and then try to spend the first one or two hours of the day without going through social media and all that. Yeah. But just those little bits make a big difference. Yeah. You fall asleep so much better when you're yes. not staring at that screen until the last minute yes. before bed. And then same That's thing in the right. morning, just not letting it monopolize your attention. First thing of the day just seems to have a carry on effect through the rest of the day. It's the simplest and easiest ones you can do. And then yeah. the other ones after that, where you go for longer periods, like, wholeheartedly recommend, you know, even something, if I could add to those recommendations, something that I learned from, uh, from Cal Newport, once again, whenever he talked mm -hmm. about doing the, the digital detox. And so if you're doing that for a longer period of time, maybe a, a week or month, um, what he recommends is just cut out everything that's not absolutely necessary. So if you're doing mm -hmm. a week or a month and you still need email for work, well, then go ahead and, and keep that. But I think what it really comes down to is get rid of everything that you usually go to 
that you're using as a substitute for something that you can get in real life. Mm. So you typically you're bored, you want entertainment. So you go to your phone or you're lonely and you want socialization. And so you go to your phone and it's this fake yeah. substitute for what should be like building a real hobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like something that our grandparents used to do. They, they had all these cool skills that they learned through, uh, making hobbies that they yep. needed to pass the time when they were bored. Yeah. Uh, or so many of us are missing out on community and real friendships because we've been, a lot, been allowing the online world to be a, a fake cheap substitute right. for all that. Yeah. Um, and I also, uh, you know, I try to encourage people. And this is one of the things that, uh, I had really learned through that breath of fresh air. Whenever I did my digital detox was, uh, you know, people talk about FOMO fear of missing out. And what I encourage is to, for people to learn JOMO, which yeah. is the joy of missing out. Yeah. Yeah. And cause at first you do, your mind is telling you that you're going to miss all these important things like when you news or whatever else, or new business opening in your city or the latest, best memes. I don't know, whatever else it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but like we were saying, after just a couple of days, you start to really get a joy learning that, man, my, my mind and attention was so taken over by all of that. And I was missing out on what's uh, the, the truly the better things in life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So, um, we've already gone through what are some, some practices and ways that, uh, the Bible gives us some unique solutions to these issues. Um, maybe you want to just share some other stories of, uh, ways that you've seen freedom from technology, bring about good fruit and whether that be your life or someone's life that you've seen in, in your church and your community, whenever they start to live the life of an analog Christian. Yeah. Yeah. The first person that comes to mind is my wife. Um, several years ago now, she deleted all of her social media. I mean, completely deleted, not like, like I deleted them from my phone, but she deleted her accounts, just no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, nothing, literally mm -hmm. nothing. She has no apps, uh, no social media apps. And she had had social media apps for many years. And initially I, I remember her, I recall her wrestling with, oh man, I, now I don't know what my friends are up to. And I, oh, I didn't know so-and-so had a baby or whatever. And then over time, what she realized was, oh, actually though, my life and my relational life and those concentric circles of relationships feel so much more natural and real now. And what she meant by that was, I now no longer know the random detail about that person I went to high school with, but haven't seen in 12 years. And so my information or knowledge about that person is actually finally congruent to my actual relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. And these aren't her words, but I'm paraphrasing her. Essentially what she said was like, my mental emotional life feels uncluttered. Yeah. And when she said that, I, I thought, what wow, that makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many times we compare our lives to the social media life of some person that we hardly know. I mean, like barely know because you happen to follow them on Instagram. 
and now they're, you know, whatever, on vacation in the south of France. And you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, that looks beautiful. When can I get there? How come I'm not there? You know, mm-hmm. um, how did they get there? Like, what, you know, that must be expensive, whatever, all those sorts of things. I mean, that that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. But there's something really strange. <clears throat> and I would suggest unnatural happening in that exchange. You are giving mental, emotional energy to the life of someone with whom you do not have the type of relationship that naturally calls for that amount of mental and emotional energy. And that creates a real incongruence and um, uh, fracturing in, in your life, in your mental, emotional life. And I think we're seeing the effects of this. I mean, you know, Jonathan Haidt, who uh, he, he co-wrote the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, and he's, uh, he's a researcher. So a lot of his work is data-based. He's shown how, and this is really sort of dark and sad and a little bit morbid, but, but many people already know the data. There, there is a parallel line in uh, the charts, the graphs between a, a sharp increase in suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts uh, amongst teenagers. That line looks almost identical to the line that charts the rise of smartphones and social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally like the same lines. And so it's it's not necessarily to say that smartphones and social media are all to blame or, or that they're they're the only ones to blame, but it is to say they play a tremendous part in the sort of societal fracturing, uh, in the rise of not just, you know, um, that sort of darkness in someone's life, that sort of despair where they would think about suicide, but even just loneliness and isolation, you know? And I think a part of it is because human beings are not designed to have that sort of emotional, mental connection um, with that many people. We're just not, humans don't have the capacity for it. There's actually psychological research that shows some of this. You know, people can just Google it if they want to, right? There's, uh, you know, humans, the average human has capacity for whatever the number is. I think it's like three to five really intimate relationships and, you know, 12 to 20 meaningful friendships and relationships and, and, you know, 50 to 100 acquaintances or something like that, whatever the numbers are. But it certainly is not, 4,822 relationships, which is like how many people many of us follow on whatever app, you know, or even not 4,000, like 400, you know, you're following 400 people on Instagram. It's like, you know, your life is not like as a human, you're not intended to have that sort of emotional, mental exchanges with that many people. And yet that is what's happening on these apps. And even more dangerously now, The algorithms on social media apps are curating what you see. So on one hand, we might think, well, isn't that a good thing? Because it's only showing me a few people. It's actually a horrible thing because the way the algorithm works, it's designed to keep you coming back for more. That's how the business operates. So what it does is it shows you whatever it thinks is going to entice you to come back. So it's actually accelerated the emotional mental exchange. 
we're going through our feeds now <clears throat> bombarded by things that interest us, bombarded by images and tweets and whatever that like really captures our hearts and minds. Again, mental, emotional engagement. And humans just aren't made for that. We're not made for yeah. that that quantity of exchange. And yeah. so I've seen it in my wife's life, you know, deleting social media completely honestly has made her a healthier, more whole person. Um, and so it's something I think about a lot, you know, deleting social media. This is like a little bit inside baseball peek behind the curtain. But honestly, I think that if, you know, some of the work that I create and share with the world weren't, wasn't such public work, I think there's a really good chance I would probably delete all of my social media, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I watch my wife and she just, like you said earlier, she breathes a different type of air, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. If it wasn't for the, yeah, the, the public nature of my work, uh, then, and, and so the necessity of being able to yeah. distribute that work yeah. and, uh, yeah, I'll delete social media in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of those insights that Christian theology gives us that the Bible gives us is that, uh, technology, at least these, these digital apps want to promise us, uh, limitless knowledge, uh, immediate wisdom, um, never ending community and so on. But, uh, but scripture teaches, and those are all attributes of God, infinite knowledge yeah. and, uh, and infinite capacity for relationships. And so, but the Bible teaches, teaches us that we are not God and that we have yeah. limits, that we have a certain capacity to, uh, our, our minds, uh, that we, uh, that, that change growth and growing in wisdom takes time. And it's not something that we can Google and yeah. get in point zero 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 one second, you know, right? as Google always tells you. <laughs> and so, uh, and yeah, so I think why it's, it's so important that we, and why I'm so appreciative of books like yours and others so important that we start utilizing these deep riches uh, of scripture and applying them to uh this digital moment that we're living in so that people can uh live better be transformed by the spirit and discipled more by christ than by facebook instagram or twitter yeah, yeah. well uh we're getting close to the end of our time i feel like we're you know just really getting some good stuff but uh that's why i have the book so that people can go and get all the the wisdom, resources, insights, and stories that you offer there. So other than just pointing people to go and get the book, which I'll have linked in the show notes, so you guys make sure you check that out. Go to the link so that you can pick up Jay's book. Anything that you want to leave our audience with before we go? Yeah, no, it's just, I again, I wrote the book as a prayer. And uh, my, my prayer uh, is that, um, there might be some thoughts and ideas in the book that, um, you know, show you a, a more hopeful, uh, way forward, you know, so that we might all collectively, uh, and more effectively become day by day, the, the sorts of men and women that, that God's called us to become. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show again today. Uh, the book that we talked about was analog Christian. Uh, you guys go check it out in the show notes so that you can pick up your copy, uh, one for you or a friend, loved one that you want to share it with, with a group that you can read it together with to all work on these things together. Uh, absolutely all about 
change happening in community and working on it with a group of friends. And so uh, go look in the show notes to uh, pick up the book and get it on your way. Jay, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, always a pleasure getting to talk to you. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, same, Aaron. Love loved chatting with you. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.